today on the podcast is Matthew Unger. Matthew Unger is CEO and founder of iComply ICO. Hi. So, welcome to the show, Matthew. Tell us a little bit about your background. Cool. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I um, my background in this space as applies to iComply probably goes back to about when I was 21. Um, I started out as the youngest broker advisor at one of the top firms in Canada and youngest they'd ever hired at the time and uh, actually went through my first security regulators audit eight days later. I didn't even have any clients, but uh, that was my first brush with regulation in a way that your palms get sweaty and you worry about what's going to happen. And after seven years, I left that industry, moved into tech. I've been in the tech space for about eight years now. And, uh, you know, the, the work with iComply really started about two years ago when uh, I was just looking at the Dow, actually, and seeing, like, oh, wow, how are people raising this much money? And, you know, I'm looking at the tech, just amazed with what's possible with decentralized technology, but at the same time, kind of shocked at what people are getting away with from uh, securities and regulation perspective. I guess that kind of leads into what motivated you to start iComply Investor Services. Yeah, it really came down to actually the theft on or the hack theft, whatever you want to call it, on the Dow. Uh, somebody found a loophole. You, you know, the different people had different flavors of phrasing it. But at the end of the day, there was no investor protection. And this technology is incredibly powerful. And if we just leave it in this rogue, wild west environment, we're not going to see it adopted in mainstream finance. And we're not going to see uh, the average person be able to access it. Their stock portfolio is going to stay on a stock exchange. It's not going to end up in a decentralized wallet. Right. That might be an interesting place to go as a decentralized stock exchange. Do you see that that being a potential future application? Uh, yeah, it's it's actually in the works already. Um, we have eight traditional stock exchanges around the world that are looking at this exact thing and we're in conversation with them too. It's actually once you deal with the compliance uh, and you understand the functions of running compliance on a transaction, it's very simple then to connect the dots between somebody who wants to buy and somebody who wants to sell. Um, we can't do that because we're a compliance software. We don't have a license to be a stock exchange. We don't have a license to be a transfer agent or a clearinghouse. And the interesting thing is that Blockchain already does the clearing and the settlement and the role of what a transfer agent does. Um, so while legislation says that a transfer agent has to exist, blockchain already fulfills that in a much more efficient manner in a technical way. So the missing link then is somebody who can do the matchmaking between the trades. And that's where exchanges have an opportunity. Nice. So what exactly are you hoping to achieve with iComply? And a follow-up question, how do you hope to legitimize ICOs and tokens in the digital economy? Hmm. Wow, it's two different questions. Um, <laughs> the first one, you know, what we're looking to achieve, we really see this, this is the future of finance. It will change over time, like the early stages of the internet look very different than what we see today. Uh, there's uh, a lot of talk around this concept of the internet of value which is what blockchain enables information or money to flow at the speed of information. But it can't do that without some checks and balances. And a really good example would be if you want to send money to someone's Ethereum address today and you get one keystroke wrong, one character wrong, uh, the money just disappears. It's gone. It's lost forever. And so there's these checks and balances. If we want to put our money into the system, that we need to have some more integrity in not only the quality of the ICOs being created and can you actually feasibly carry out this project that you want to create, but also in the quality of the technology that we're releasing for production. It's important that we have some due diligence both 
on the business side as well as on the technical side. Smart. So what are some of the emerging trends you're seeing in the regulatory space? Oh, man. Emerging trends. And, uh, there's a couple big ones that are on our radar right now, some that we're excited about and some that are, in my opinion, quite terrifying. <laughs> Uh, on the on the downside, there's uh, something called Bill C-1241, uh, and this is basically, uh, it's in the U.S., it's already under review in Congress, so it's made it it's quite of the way through becoming legislation already, and what 1241 will do is anybody who issues a token, whether utility or security or commodity, etc., will be classified as a financial institution and have to comply with everything from the Patriot Act to all sorts of financial institution legislation. And there's some cases, and I can a really good local example is CryptoKitties, mm-hmm. um, where there's just no way that's a financial institution. It's Tomagotchi slash Beanie Babies on the blockchain, but that's, it's still a consumer product. It's not a financial product. And they released a finished, finalized piece of software that it's really not a financial institution. So I think that there's this pendulum shift where there's no regulation and we have this risk of over-regulating. Uh, we see this with bit licenses and, for example, the state of New York. The concept of doing that is just so... Uh, it'll hinder so much innovation and it'll just send that innovation to other jurisdictions, which will only, the rate of money moving towards blockchain is just a trickle right now. It's just a few drops before the dam breaks. And if your jurisdiction has bad regulation that's going to limit this innovation, you're not going to be the future in, in the digital economy. You're not going to be uh, a big player. You'll be the North Korea. The digital economy is <laughs> not a good place to be. Uh, on the other side of the proverbial coin, there's the technical investor status. Uh, it's HR 1585, I think it is, in uh, in the U.S. as well. So it's already made it through the House and is now being reviewed by Congress. And this one's really cool because there's only been two classifications of investors for most countries for a securities law perspective. There's accredited and non-accredited investors. And if you want to simplify that for the lame person, an accredited investor is somebody who's wealthy and the rest of us are non-accredited. And accredited investors have the opportunity, they say, because you have money, you must be able to assess this project and understand the risk you're taking more simply because of the size of your bank account or your income, which is quite silly. The technical investor status is really cool because it's based on somebody's abilities. So if you have a lot of experience or knowledge about blockchain technology and there's an ICO coming up, you could be a accredited or technical investor for that project because of your knowledge of that technology. Same thing if you're a PhD in molecular biology and you just graduated and you don't have a lot of cash and there's some VC with millions and there's a molecular biology startup, you probably are just as well suited to make a sound decision to invest in that or not as somebody who just has a big bankroll. Um, so those are some things that that's, that one specifically we really want to see move forward. Uh, and then something that's coming out of Europe uh, for this spring is GDPR, which is basically privacy, a whole new era of privacy legislation because blockchain is a public ledger. Typically, there's a huge amount of risk around privacy. And so far, there's not a single ICO that's, that I've seen that comes anywhere near meeting the requirements of GDPR. So those are all uh, things that people need to start paying attention to because the fine for doing something wrong in securities law is up to 10 years in jail, $250,000 fine rescission or you have to pay back your investors uh the fine for gdpr is 20 million dollars per instance wow so (laughs) it's stuff you have to pay attention to yeah 
So you mentioned uh, uh, your trip to Europe. I believe it was Zurich and, and Berlin, and we saw that uh, you were speaking on some topics at uh, yeah. events. Yeah, so we were at first stop, I guess it was TechCrunch Disrupt in Berlin. Uh, we actually got to do a little uh, filmed interview, which was really cool. And uh, the just get to see some of the tech talent there. Uh, we also had the meetings with some of the investors that we've started building relationships uh, with in Europe and different cities there. And there's also a lot of talent in Berlin, in Switzerland as well. Um, but there's some talent in Europe uh, and Eastern Europe that is just amazing technology coming out of there that could very much lead the future of where this is going. So it was great to connect with some of them, uh, work on building some partnerships. And, you know, it's not just in the startup space. Uh, you see companies as big as the major banks, the major stock exchanges, some of the largest companies in the world starting to look at this technology and how do they use this to future-proof and de-risk being eliminated, essentially, or, or their, their business case being removed from the marketplace. So maybe you can contrast Eastern Europe and the Valley. You know, the Silicon Valley has always been looked at as the center for a lot of innovation and advances in technology. Um, however, from what we just said, it seems like there's other areas in the world now that are moving things along. Is uh, Silicon Valley just too rich where there's uh, more money at play than technology? We're doing a seed round as a startup and we've gone through the circuit in Silicon Valley and there's, you see this, you know, AngelList uh, published something recently and I think TSX Ventures just published something recently talking about how early stage financing is drying up and everyone wants late stage deals. This is creating a real problem for early stage innovation. Our company is early stage. It makes it much harder to raise and this is why the ICO is becoming more popular because I can go around and have people kind of jerk my chain for maybe a few million if I'm lucky, or I can do an ICO and raise 30, 40 million dollars and be like, hey, I don't even, you didn't even get shares or voting rights in the company in a lot of cases. Uh, so companies are really, startups are really looking at using this tool, but the talent out of the valley, uh, there's some really amazing talent there for sure. Um, some of the projects that I've talked to, you know, we would love to work with, with some of the different companies that are there, but at the same time, there's a ton of, uh, projects that are kind of just adjacent to the existing technology. They're not, I would say this, some of the stuff I'm seeing, uh, out of Eastern Europe right now is maybe not ready to be implemented today in the world, but in three, four years, it could become a standard for, for the world and whether it stays out there or whether they move somewhere where there's deeper pockets like North America or specifically in the U.S. It's the largest capital market in the world. And we'll see how that goes. Great. So I'd like to get a little bit into the applications. Right now, it seems to me that blockchain and the Ethereum platform are tools which we can build on, but there's not really that one killer app that kind of makes it available to the public. Not yet, anyway. We were talking a little bit earlier about some of the interesting projects uh, on the go, and specifically where the space could go. Do you want to talk a little bit about the projects and opportunities we could potentially see? I think actually you mentioned this, Adam, uh, maybe it was on Facebook at one point, but it's, you know, Bitcoin is like uh, layer zero. It's it's the pure foundation and it's, it's not scalable. It's not customer facing technology. It's very backbone. And I was meeting with a, with a VC in, in Europe. And he says never before has he been involved. And this guy has been involved in some of the largest tech companies in the world. And he says, never before have I been where I've seen so many investors care at all about what the backend infrastructure does. Normally it's like, how does the technology work? It works good. 
And that's, okay, cool. <laughs> How, what's the business case? Oh, that's exciting. But now they're like, oh, what's the latency? And what about, you know, there's all these questions and digging into the scalability. And yeah, investors maybe are a little more sophisticated, but they're also, a lot of them just don't even understand what they're what they're asking about and, and, and really understand what the implications of the current state is. So there's not a lot that's ready for customer facing at this point. Um, a lot of it is much more backbone. Like the Ethereum platform itself is there for developers to build on. That's definitely not end user facing yet, right? Um, and I think you see this with a lot of the projects. They're still very developer heavy and it's still very uh, community based like we saw with things like Linux where it's you know community putting it together and, and building and growing these applications. It's much more of an organic growth than traditional pushes by a specific company yeah organic but with the way that they can fund it's somewhat exponential as well which is different than you know if you think of how much money is linux foundation raised to date and you know <laughs> compare that to any of these icos that how many developers do they have what sort of expertise do they have and you look at something like linux foundation and you see the quality of people behind there there's this new breed right now there's definitely a lot of projects coming through people have no idea how they're going to create what they're going to create or in many cases with ICOs they're solving what I like to call like layer 13 on an imaginary future tech stack that they have 12 other projects that they rely on their success to be able to even have a problem to solve and uh, you see a lot of these projects and they're raising tens to hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, have you know in a lot of cases don't even have developers it's somebody with an idea a website and a bounty program if you're lucky so there's I think a lot of room for um making it easier for people to understand what am I investing in in these projects and and also clarifying that, hey, this is just, it is an investment. Let's stop kidding ourselves. In most cases, again, CryptoKitties, I have a really hard time seeing how that's not a utility, how that's not just, it's software, right? Like you're just buying a Tomagotchi. But with a lot of these other programs, if you can secondary trade it, it's probably an investment and that's how you know people buy in at a discount and they have the ability to resell at a profit there's expectation of profit you only need one of those four mechanisms on the on the howey test to be classified as a security and the other thing that's interesting with these projects is they run to gibraltar and singapore and switzerland and grand cayman and and they do it for any number of reasons tax evasion could be one of them uh, but the other thing that they really aren't aware of is that the SEC has jurisdiction in pretty much any country in the world where they have a trade treaty in place, where the U.S. has a trade treaty in place. So that's most of them. And the SEC also has the ability to, it's focused on where the investor is. It's not where you issue. There's so little about securities regulation is about where you issue from or consumer protection. It's about where is the customer, where is the investor. And if they're based out of the U.S. and they happen to be in Europe, when they buy into your ICO, if you don't have a mechanism in there to prevent that, then you're still you're still fully liable and at risk if you don't watch it, if you're not managing these risks and, and protecting yourself. Right. So you mentioned, obviously, the uh, all these things about cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Uh, so we see a lot of mainstream ad adoption, and uh, maybe you can give us a bit of an insight from what it means to your company and perhaps the industry with uh, the CME and CBOE opening up Bitcoin trading uh, futures and options. Yeah, so it's interesting because it's not getting directly into it. They're not buying it, but they run futures against it. So they are 
wanting to participate in the market and offer something. I think there's a couple thousand futures contracts live right now. They have a very short window on them. Um, but it is allowing people to get in on it. The interesting thing with that is you see the second that those contracts started to go live and started to become available, the amount of institutional money uh, starting to flow directly to Bitcoin. And right now, there's an assessment that says about 15% of Bitcoin is now owned by the big five institutions. So when you think about it from that perspective and you start saying, well, wait a second, now I, they have the ability to manipulate up to 15% of the price of Bitcoin and also then buy and sell futures for and against that, um, you run into scenarios where, again, it's good that this is happening on an immutable public ledger because at some point there's probably going to be prosecution for market manipulation and such as regulation moves on. The problem is, is that the regulation isn't there today. So things like futures can help to stabilize the price of Bitcoin. The fact of how the money is flowing into it could also see the opposite. People could very much try to create massive swings to buy and sell at, at highs and lows. Right. So do you see there's a, a mad rush to beat regulation for institutions to, to have a, a larger stake in something like Bitcoin or Litecoin or other currencies? To, to, to beat regulation as in to get in before? Right. I think, yeah, that's, no, I think there's, there's a window to make money where it's the wild west and you can come in and put in your land claims and wait, you know, like stake all the land that you can while before the regulation comes in. I do think that that's something that we're seeing happen now. And, you know, you see the price of Bitcoin is nudging at $20,000 as of today. And there's definitely need for correction, but at the same time in the long term, I don't see a scenario where it doesn't go up, but that's very much over a long term scenario, right? Over time though, these currencies as new ones come out and it comes down to the ability of these networks to stay current uh, and bitcoin you saw with the, the whole attempt to fork and then not being able to fork um, and there's a lot of um, market control happening from a very few amount of players and given that that was the entire thing bitcoin was really trying to solve it's interesting that the number of people the amount of bitcoin being owned by like six people as an example a future coin could disrupt Bitcoin because it has a much more equitable structure and mechanisms built in to make sure that that manipulation and minor dominance doesn't happen on a network. And even with the, if you think of with an ICO, um, if you issue shares in a company, there's typically rules involved. You can't buy more than 5% of the stock of a company without board of director approval. Uh, on our platform, this is something that you can actually embed into your token to make sure that, hey, listen, we saw a wireline ICO uh, was it a week and a half ago? 50,000 users purchased it. And then immediately in the first week, 20,000 addresses consolidated into one wallet. Mm. And there's these uh, server farms essentially in, in the Philippines is what happened with this project where they just spin up all these wallets. And because they're not really managing identity properly, um, they're taking money from these different addresses, not realizing that it's all being pooled into one. And one of the things that a lot of these ICOs don't realize is that, yeah, you can run identity and KYC and anti-money laundering and all these checks and balances on the issuance. But the second that token trades to somebody that you haven't checked on a secondary exchange, you're personally liable as the issuer. And a lot of tokens that we talk to, they say, well, that's the exchange's problem. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I wish you were right for your sake, but you're definitely not. It's the issuer's problem because that is your token and you're the one that issued it. So 
uh, the secondary trading and the ability to have governance around secondary trading. This is what our protocol does. And uh, the whole focus there is to provide protection for the investor, but also to mitigate risk for the issuers as well. And I think this is something we're going to see more and more of that as these new sanctions keep rolling out. I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with what we're seeing from sanctions around not only fraudulent coins, but people who just made stupid claims on Facebook and you know stuff like this for their tokens. Yeah. So there was an example, uh, I think one of the earlier cases from Montreal, NICO, that guy got in trouble for. So maybe you have more insider information on what happened. <laughs> Not there. insider, but on the inside track. <laughs> yeah, no, we definitely uh, Munchie, stuff. I think is the one you're referring to. I'm not sure which there one. Was, there was in Mon- the, I think it was a Montreal based yeah, company. Yeah, so there was one recent one that just happened uh, called Munchie. And that one, um, we have actually uh, screenshotted a section of, of the SEC filing uh, around it because it was, I think it was article number 17, complaint number 17 that they had uh, for it was basically purely around the claims that they made in social media posts on the token sale. And, you know, if you call the people buying your tokens investors, if you're giving them a discount, uh, in this case, they were saying there was a there was a video, I think a YouTube video that said you get 194% return. These are the things that if you had any experience working with securities, you would know you would never say these things. And there's a an ICO, you know, I, I've found sometimes in the wee hours of the night and I'm scrolling on Facebook on seeing these ICOs and then sometimes you see some of the claims they make and I'm just like, I can't help myself. But, you know, I have a couple screenshots of different SEC sanctions on different tokens and I'm like, just curious, like, how is this any different than the claims here? Like, uh, this one ICO right now, they just closed $10 million and, uh, you look at so many of their ads, they're all like guaranteed 161% rate of return, invest now. And you're just like, my God, you guys are just setting it. Like, there's just no way I would invest in that project because all it's going to do is tie up my money until they end up going to court. You go to jail for 10 years or you pay back the money and potentially both. This is with Munchie, this was the case. Uh, Tezos is something similar to that where there's... 200 and it's 232 million i think that yeah. they might have to pay back yeah and they're in one of the lawsuits and i believe there's two yeah there's, there's yeah. A, exactly there's a number of lawsuits and class action suits and and the problem in their structure with doing this whole like swiss foundation and american team and this whole blended thing is the foundation is a little further removed which is where a lot of the money is but now these guys who came up with the project here they they're the ones who are going to be sitting in the court and they're the ones who are going to be facing this and i think we're going to see more and more of this with these people that run overseas where they realize that actually has there's something called mind and matter which is pretty common in tax law where it's not whether your company says they do business in grand cayman if your management team or if you're a sole proprietor and you're you're here the mind and matter of your business is here. That's where the tax is. Yeah, okay, you can go ahead and pay taxes in Grand Cayman, but you still need to pay taxes here too, and you could end up paying more. Uh, and I think there's there's certain consulting firms that have made a lot of money advising ICOs to run to tax havens, uh, and then you know kind of offering a lot of really bad advice. And I would say for ICOs that are looking at this saying, well, hey, I can make the money. This is exactly what some of the lawyers and, and and the consultants that are working on this, they look at this like, well, we can help you go ahead and raise your token. 
and I know you don't have a lot of money now, but we'll take some tokens in the deal. We'll sell them off when you go live. And then when the SEC comes calling or the IRS comes calling or any number of you know competition bureau or any number of other laws that you've broken, um, now you have a lot of money to pay for representation. <laughs> so whose interests are really, you know, really think about that when somebody's coming in and you see this a lot with um, with lawyers right now that have maybe a tech background that are advising around securities on an ICO. They have no more experience in that than I do. You know, we offer zero consulting on our platform. We're purely software. Um, if you want to deal with a lawyer, when our full platform goes live, you will be able to access a lawyer in your jurisdiction from any number of different firms and, and pick the one that's best suited to your project. But we will not ourselves ever offer advice because that's not our area of expertise we can build really good scalable software but we're not there to uh we're not there to offer advice and i think there's a lot of people taking advice from people and they say well they're a lawyer or oh they're they've advised a whole bunch of other icos that doesn't necessarily mean there's any quality behind that right so do you find that some of these uh lawyers or law firms maybe are creating this uh demand for their services later is that what you're hinting at uh, there's definitely, I would definitely say that there are scenarios where that is what's being done. And, you know, you see some of the fees, there's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a cartel mentality, and especially in certain countries, you see this happening where, uh, you know, I've talked to a number of people in, in one country specifically where the leading firm that deals there and one of the top law firms in the country, uh, they charged a number of different ICOs I've talked to between six and $700,000 to basically give them four templated forms and tell them, well, we think you're a utility. And we were looking at that like six, $700,000. Why wouldn't you go public when you start talking about numbers like this? Well, like there is actually, there's actually a good answer to that is because the decentralized markets and decentralized capital markets, as we started calling them, actually have a huge amount of opportunity over an IPO as an example, which is restricted to one country, one exchange, and, and there's a lot of friction to get your money in and out. Whereas, as you know, with with blockchain, it's because of the trust in, enabled within blockchain technology, it's a lot easier to move your money. So one interesting thing that you mentioned earlier is raising funds by government versus raising funds via ICO. Mm -hmm. So could you speak to that? Yeah, I, the thing that is... I think even attracted a lot of the people on our team. We have an incredible team of heavy hitters in the tech space and finance. And the thing that's attracted people to our project has been that the ICO enables projects that would never have seen the light of day before to actually get funded and, and at least get a shot. And so it really unlocks this access to funds. And we've talked about a number of different scenarios where public-private partnerships or, you know, we've actually talked to uh, a government agency that issues AAA government bonds uh, about issuing funds over uh, over an ICO. And it was actually really eye-opening to me to hear their objections around it where, you know, they, one, there's some concern because the ICO uh, has already somewhat branded as being, you know, a high risk of fraud and a lot of problems and things like this. There's a lot of room for improvement for sure. But the big thing that I noticed from them, their objection was, you know, saying, well, when we issue funds, we will issue, you know, like blocks of $500 million at a time. So you can't raise that type of money off of a website. And I was just surprised because this was the conversation was after the Filecoin ICO. And I said, well, how long do you typically, what's your cycle for this. Oh, usually in four to six weeks. And I said, well, 
Filecoin raised half of that in three hours. So which is more likely to close quickly? And how much did it cost you to raise? And so they, in their scenario, I think that the last raise was about $7 million that they paid. And in order to raise using a platform like ours, it's $40,000 to do the issuance. And this is when our full platform is live. And each investor has to get cleared. But you're talking about pennies compared to millions, you know, and it's uh, a totally different value proposition. So I think uh, as we start reaching the same gold standard of following the rules and building in regulation into how the token functions, then we actually enable, we unlock massive amounts of money. Like the, there's been 6 billion approximately now that's gone into crypto and there's 160 trillion in capital markets uh, on public and private markets. So like everybody who's saying like, oh, this is huge. Yeah, it is considering how many, you know, it's been around for a couple of years now. It's, it's a small market. It's growing very quickly. But when you compare it to what it's up against, it's not even a drop in the bucket right now. And all that's stopping institutional money from getting into ICOs or government money from getting into ICOs is people just need to clean up their act and build to the regulations of privacy and data security and reaching these standards of quality and securities compliance and things like this. And you reach these standards and now there's no reason why government wouldn't also want to adopt this uh, or a publicly traded company. I like using the scenario of Apple. It's the largest publicly traded company. And you say, okay, well, this company, you know, it's got hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you look at how many people actually own Apple shares, very difficult to find that information and very expensive to get the research done to find that information. And at the end of the day, you say, okay, well, there's this many people. Well, what can Apple do with that? Can they market to their investors directly? Can they send all of their shareholders a coupon for the iPhone, you know, 20X? Uh, like they can't do any of this stuff, but if they were to delist on the stock exchange and relist as a token, they would be able to engage their shareholders as their number one product champions. And everybody knows that Apple shareholders have been the biggest promoters of Apple technology since the early days. So I think that this is where we see the opportunity. There's only been two capital markets previously. It was public and private. And now we have the scenario where we can say, well, it's public, private, and decentralized, and it decentralizes this little thing off to the side that will grow over time. Or we can just ensure that decentralized capital markets function in line with the regulations that the other markets already have to and typically do. And at that point, there's nothing stopping the flow of capital to move over to decentralized, which is way cheaper to manage, way cheaper to operate, way cheaper to issue. And you also get a lot more abilities to engage your investors, have transparent governance and things like this that, you know, you try to stop a, a block trading on a stock exchange. You can't do that. With our platform, a regulator would be able to get a real-time alert of block trades happening on any token or any number of tokens. Because blockchain is a public ledger, you can just set a script to just monitor that and put up an alert. So you can identify bad actors in real time. Whereas, you know, I, I love having this conversation with the regulator because how long does it take you to investigate a block trade? And typically, they're just like, we wouldn't waste our resources attempting to do that. Uh, and if even if they do, it's a whole team of people and it's months of research and this is a totally different totally different uh, vehicle that allows for a lot of this to kind of unlock uh, a whole new level of compliance and enforcement 
So given that uh, there's all this opportunity to make things a lot more efficient, transparent, uh, use open source, open standards, etc. What do you see from how established companies and incumbents are fighting uh, the, the adoption and putting this uh, fear, uncertainty and doubt out there that these are Ponzi schemes, this is that and the other, keep mm-hmm. your money out of Bitcoin. I mean, we saw Jamie Diamond, mm-hmm. is that the guy? Diamond, yeah. Yeah, he's from J.B. Morgan, uh, was, uh, you know, saying uh, how, you know, he's going to fire people if they <laughs> invest in it and God knows what else uh, he said. But um, there's many examples of this and maybe from your perspective and uh, your work in the area, what are some of the fear, uncertainty and doubt that you've seen and uh, what can you tell listeners to, to be reassured where those myths are coming from? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. You mentioned Jamie Dimon because if you scan money inflows onto blockchain or, or pardon me, onto Bitcoin specifically, um, over the last couple of months, it's JP Morgan, Barclays. You see this stuff happening live. They're putting billions of dollars towards this. So they've kind of gone one way and, and then gone the other, but they don't want to miss out and it's it's about keeping your business model safe as long as possible before you have to bounce towards the the new thing and take that risk and take that leap but there's been a whole bunch of different things and some of it might be conspiracy or speculation but as an example here in Canada we have some interesting changes to our regulation that are coming into effect in spring around how you can verify the identity of a person if you're issuing an ICO, as an example, or if you're opening up a bank account. So in a lot of countries, a passport, a driver's license, and in Canada right now, that all qualifies as it's government-issued photo ID that qualifies as identity or you know as a means of verifying your identity. Uh, as of spring next year in Canada, that will no longer be the case. And the thing is, is we can take a selfie of somebody and run facial recognition software against the photo on their passport to do like, you know, how many matches are here and and add another layer of of data enforced. Like, yeah, we looked at it and looked like the same person, but this software also said it's 16 out of 16 matches or, you know, things like this, right? So you have this whole ability. You can run text recognition. You can look for holograms. You can look for the size and the spacing and the fonts and all sorts of different things to verify that this is a legitimate passport, as an example. In Canada, somehow, somewhere, and this is where the conspiracy theorist in me comes in, and I'm like, somewhere down the pipe, if you could trade. If this, was, if this all happened on blockchain, we'd follow the money, and I'm sure there'd be some banking lobbyists here somewhere. Because uh, as of spring next year, a driver's license, a passport won't qualify, but your utility bill will. And so you think about if you want to run text recognition, it's a lot harder to do this in, a, in an automated way. When is it your energy? Is it your cell phone? Like it's, it creates this whole scenario that kind of ensures this is probably going to still be a very physical, come sit in my office, book an hour to like sit through and fill out these paper forms and all this stuff that we really, we know we don't need this anymore. And uh, I think there's going to be, in a very short order, in a few years, we're going to see biometrics becoming a huge part of ID where my phone takes my thumbprint, fingerprint, I can do a facial recognition scan. Like, why is this not being used a lot more for identity rather than going back to your cell phone bill? Like, to me, that just seems like a very backwards step, but it requires a much more manual process. So I think these are some of the changes and. I think we're going to see a lot more of that type of stuff where I mentioned earlier, Bill 1241, 
be another example of that where it's very much moving backwards not only on just you know not just to protect the incumbent but also just on technology and innovation in general um, and and it's actually put society at a greater risk for fraud and the people that are there to supposedly gatekeep this legislation aren't necessarily paying attention to some of the bigger picture of, of what's really going on and and how how this technology can be used uh, in a way to actually uh, raise the bar for a lot of this stuff a lot of things around compliance it was interesting the SEC was doing a this uh, I think it was late summer or, or beginning of fall was doing an interview with a panel of blockchain experts and they're trying to describe how and it, frankly it didn't go very well for the for the blockchain people they were really picked apart in a lot of ways but it was interesting one of the last questions that one of the regulators said was well if blockchain is immutable and you have all this could a regulator use this to monitor and keep a record of compliance and a record of transactions and I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, I'm watching this on YouTube and I'm raising my hand. I'm like, we're here. This is what we do. And then, <laughs> and then the guy says, well, yeah, if, if somebody were to build that. And it's just like, but this is what the technology does. And it's actually very easy when it's on a public blockchain to put that into an interface that a regulator can look at and be like, oh, that's what's going on. Because they need to see it in a financial layout, not mm -hmm. in code. And just changing that, you know, it's like a, a smart contract isn't legally enforceable typically because nobody understands what they're agreeing to. You need a natural language contract that someone can read and sign off on. And, you know, this is in the language of your country. And, and then you can enforce that stuff over smart contract but you're not eliminating the natural language contracts. Hopefully you're digitizing them, but you're not eliminating the natural language. At least not yet. Right. Not until everyone's, you know, starts speaking in code. When they're <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. That might happen someday. So what would you say are some of the common pitfalls people encounter when launching an ICO? Well, I think one of the first things is people... Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions that I hear when people say, Hey, I, I heard you're in this space. I want to do an ICO. And they think that it's, you know, you go to Squarespace, you spin up a website and you collect $40 million. They don't understand that there's still a huge amount of marketing, a huge amount of research. And as ICOs continue to evolve, we're going to see audited financial statements, a third party to vet your business plan. And does your team have any tech experience whatsoever? And if you don't, have you brought in people that can help you in those areas? Have you filled in these gaps of expertise and, and, and things? So uh, I think that the common pitfalls people have right now is just this idea that it's, oh, it's just free money. Um, and as we see this regulation coming down, the other thing that people really seem to waste a ton of time on is this whole uh, trying to not be a security when they're raising based on an idea or a project that they, you know, it's very clearly if you're allowing secondary trading of your token, it's probably going to be a security. Just, just that alone will probably make it a security, and especially if you haven't built anything yet. Uh, or you haven't built like your finalized product, you're not releasing, you know, if Skype did a token that managed your access to Skype, that might be a utility. But if you don't have a finished product, you're going to have a very hard time being a utility. And I think people waste a ton of time on this utility versus security scenario. The other thing is that utility, the whole concept of how do we govern and how do we regulate utilities is very much under review and will change a lot over the next couple of years and I think we'll see the regulation go way too far and then be pulled back and it will be a nightmare to issue a utility token for a long time but a security token is really interesting because we have 
almost a hundred years of a playbook that's been written and there's case law and it's kind of entrenched already. So you have you have a rule book and it's not much different than what TurboTax did for the Income Tax Act. Uh, this is kind of what our software does for the Securities Act and it says, well, you have this ability to follow the rules and we can do that digitally. Um, so I think those would be key things. And, and the big thing would be if you're getting involved, expect six months at least to build up your idea and get it vetted and bring on advisors and make sure that you have a solid project, build a community around it uh, before you even issue it and, and engage your community in it. I think the strongest projects are ones where the, you know, the developers are excited to be a part of it and people, they're building up something that's just, it's more than just raising some money. And if you are just looking at raising money, then set it against a, you know, I like to call them class T shares, class T for token and just like issue shares in your company that are in line with the securities regulation and use a token to do it. But uh, I think that there's going to be a lot more of this um, work around due diligence and planning around ICOs. I think we're going to see a lot of that change in 2018. Right. So maybe we can uh, clear up some of the definitions for the listeners, such as what a token is versus oh. an ICO, et cetera. <laughs> and a lot of people are throwing these words around without really knowing what they're saying. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good place to start is there's a ton of um, lingo. And this one interview I saw with the SEC and, and a, a number of blockchain experts, and I thought it was so funny because one of the directors at the SEC who's there says, well, you guys have ICO and this and like all these different, you have lingo and acronyms and you're just trying to make it complicated for people. And I spent seven years in finance and I'm like, yeah, we have all sorts of acronyms and things that we use to make it complicated for people. And granted, there's a lot of different abstract concepts and people put acronyms around them and different things like that just for industry speak. Uh, but it was very ironic for me to hear that from the securities world saying, oh, the tech world is making these, well, the financial world's been doing this for ages too. And, you know, maybe that's part of the function of just having a very complicated thing and tech is the same way. But um, no, I think there's a lot of lingo that if you think of ICO, initial coin offering, this coin or what's more commonly now being referred to as a token. This is the hard part with regulation is a token could represent a number of different things. It could be uh, there's kind of some scenarios where they call them access or utility or security. And in the sense of security, it's referring to stocks and bonds and securities in a financial sense. Um, and so a token could represent one share in your company. Uh, in the case of a utility, a token could be somewhat consumptive in value, where I would liken that to a bus pass or a train ticket, where you can buy 10 tickets in one card and you can spend your trips and eventually they go down. You might need to top it up. And I think the best analogy for something like an access token would be, you know, you think of software access licensing fees and things like this. But a really good example in the real world is things like uh, credit unions and cooperatives where you have to buy one membership share in order to be part of this network. And I actually think that's going to be a huge thing that we're going to start seeing in the, in the coming years where people start realizing that, well, okay, the corporate structure is interesting. The security structure is interesting, but there are other ways of structuring organizations that are actually quite decentralized like cooperatives. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of people starting to look at things like cooperative registration for their projects. And I think one of the reasons why people don't do it is it's very hard for one person to control an entire cooperative. So it's much easier to do as a 
corporation and then the founder of the project can be like, well, this is all my piece. In a cooperative, at some point, they have equal voting with everyone else, no matter how much of the network they own. Uh, and I think that's an example of what I was saying before, where there's projects that will be more equitable and more fair in their structure. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that coming in the next couple of years. So I'm really curious about your platform you keep mentioning. Um, mm. What's your product roadmap with that? And then how can people contact you? Mm. Yeah, so uh, maybe the second part, uh, how people can contact us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We just started our Telegram group, iComply ICO Official. That's what it is. Uh, it's an open group. People can join there. What we're doing with our platform, it, it kind of boils down into two pieces. Uh, the first, and we're, we're staging the rollout in, in three phases. So our first phase is for January, and uh, this is basically transactional compliance monitoring. So if somebody wants to issue an ICO and they want to have the KYC, the anti-money laundering, uh, anti-terrorist financing, sanctions, uh, global identity, document verification, all of these things rolled into one product. That's what we do. And we do it in a way that ensures that they aren't uh, holding on to passports and they aren't holding on to this information so that the user has some more confidence, the investor has some more confidence that their passport isn't being distributed to 50 different exchanges and 40 different ICOs. Um, and it's really you know there to help the issue get their whitelist onto the system, verify everybody's identity, and then we actually use blockchain to have a compliance ledger so that if a regulator ever comes in to say, well, it's not just did you do something wrong, it's can you prove that you followed the proper procedures? And so that kind of brings us into the second part, which is more the platform. And that's really to bring some due diligence and assurance so that you can interface with your lawyer. And a good example of this would be a lawyer or accountant or assurance or consultant, marketer, different developer, token developers. But there's a certain level of standard of quality around the people that are onboarding assets onto blockchain and helping companies onboard assets onto blockchain and put projects onto blockchain. And that's really what our core of our platform is there for, is to add that trust layer. Uh, and so a good example of how this functions, because a lot of people say, well, how do you handle, we're the only technology in the world that can handle the secondary trading, and we're agnostic to whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Ripple or Hyperledger, you know, any of these protocols as they come out, as they reach a certain critical mass, we can implement and can put that governance into the token on whatever protocol they're going to use. Uh, and people always say, how is this possible? And I, I like to use the example of your compliance procedures. As a company, if you're issuing shares, as an example, uh, as a publicly traded company, you have to pass a board resolution that says what your compliance procedures will be. And so this is something that we're releasing in the early stages of our platform is this ability. You have a natural language contract that your board members all ratify. They all sign. They all digitally sign the contract. And once the last signature goes on the contract, whatever those terms are, if you said we're going to do KYC first, then AML, whatever that sequence of events that you've selected as your procedures, and then once you've signed off on it, we drop a copy of that natural language hash of that contract onto your compliance ledger and then we drop a simultaneous hash of the smart contract form of that contract and that's what every transaction checks against that and follows the procedures on that so it's always available on the network uh, and if you end up having new regulations come into play in five years from now that totally change how you have to run your compliance procedures, your board members sign off on the new procedures and it hashes a new copy and immediately enforces the new compliance procedures. So 
that's kind of the core of what our tech does. It's uh, probably not a simplest explanation, <laughs> but uh, we are getting better at it. And I think one, you know, somebody actually told me, I thought it was a really good way to describe it, was that we're putting in guardrails on the token to allow it to trade within the confines of the law. And so that the issuer can just focus on raising the money and get started on their project uh, rather than worrying about, you know, are they going to face another lawsuit for issuing a, a security as a donation, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is something we're seeing a lot of right now. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to hone in on the specific value prop of your of your platform. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's some interesting maybe I don't want to get into like a, a feature dump, but there's some interesting things I, I mentioned where you know, Ethereum has or a lot of these protocols. There's a problem where if you get the address wrong, because we check compliance on the sender and the receiver of any token. Um, we can't run compliance on an address that doesn't exist. So any compliant token, any token that uses our protocol, you can't burn the money by sending it to a fake address. Uh, if you sent money to an address that didn't exist, it would just stop and say, this address doesn't exist. You can't, you know, that's your error message that comes up. So the value proposition, depending on which stakeholders involved for a regulator, um, we give them the ability to have a lot more enforcement and a lot more insight into what exactly how this functions. And we're hoping by giving them these tools, they'll realize that you can actually hold blockchain investments to a way higher standard than even the stock market. Uh, for the issuer, uh, it's so much cheaper to raise money um, if you're using a much more standardized approach and you don't have to reinvent the wheel and spend $600,000 on your legal. Um, in our platform, when somebody launches, they'll pay an access fee and that gives them some baseline starting legal contracts, starting different work depending on their jurisdiction. The prices are based on the lawyers that, that are working in that area. Um, but it's a lot, a lot lower cost than even what it costs today to do an ICO in the Wild West environment. Um, and then the, on the side of the investor, it's really interesting because we're giving the investor a lot more control of their personal information, their data, their documents. So like you, you imagine like, you know, you see how many exchanges just go up in smoke and, and disability. And even if you, not even just the, the, the security of your information, um, but also the fact that every single time you go to a new project, you have to do your KYC again, you have to do all this stuff again. And now you won't have to. You'll have a global KYC that you can take to any compliant asset and immediately just be trading within the confines of what that asset is, is required to operate under. Um, so probably not the shortest definition, but um, <laughs> there's a lot involved with the platform that's facing so many different stakeholders. You know, law firms, accounting firms, they're, you know, they're stakeholders in the environment as well. Like I said, exchanges is another good example. Whether they're a crypto exchange, they can just take an SDK and they can implement and any compliant token can be trading on their exchange. Um, if they're uh, a traditional stock market, because they have a license to do business, so those are the ones that we're talking a lot more to because there's a lot of appetite for stock markets to start listing crypto because they understand that the business has changed and Pandora's box is open. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not coming back. So I think there's going to be, uh, we're going to see in 2018, we're going to see traditional stock exchanges start deploying crypto in a whole new way that they've never done before. Um, there's some projects like NASDAQ uh, and uh, you know a couple other exchanges that have done where it's a closed private network. It really isn't, they're kind of square peg, round hole, centralizing and decentralized technology and still making sure that the only people that can access the nodes on the blockchain are the intermediaries. Uh, and I think we're gonna see that completely change next year with, with some of the exchanges we've talked to already 
uh, there's an appetite to get in first in order to have all this wealth from around the world start flowing through their exchanges. Very cool. So one thing I'd like to close on, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but in your background, you've been very involved with the organization Surfrider, and they do some pretty cool things. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that, and if you could talk a little bit about the impact you made. Yeah, Surfrider Foundation has been around since the 80s. Uh, the mandate of the organization is to protect and enjoy waves, oceans, and beaches. So it's, there's a lot about um, environmental protection, but also just for the enjoyment of our generation and future generations, uh, we get to, you know, do a little bit of surfing, but we do a lot of beach cleanups and stuff like that. Um, impacts that the organization has had is, is huge. I, I think there's a, a lot of uh, public parks that exist today uh, that wouldn't have existed. There's a lot of public beaches that exist today that wouldn't exist without uh, Surfrider having been there. Uh, actually, this morning, Surfrider Vancouver did a beach cleanup, uh, I think it was English Bay. Um, I'm not as involved as I was uh, before. I, I worked and built up the Vancouver chapter and was chair of the Vancouver chapter for a number of years and I'm on the board of directors for Surfrider Canada. But earlier this year, it was basically uh, getting to the point where I, I really felt like something was really going to change in this space and I felt I didn't really have as much time to run a nonprofit on the side of working. And uh, I'm really lucky that I did because <laughs> I barely have time to do anything, much less, uh, much less even attend a lot of the Surfrider events right now. But um, yeah, the impacts that we've had out of Vancouver, uh, we actually engaged with a number of different uh, pieces of changing legislation. And, and that experience is funny how that transforms now into a space where we're not only dealing with regulation with that comply, but we're also dealing with legislation and trying to shift and navigate legislation that's coming that will be regulation in the future and with Surfrider we had uh, plastic microbeads was a campaign that started out of Vancouver and there were three of us that kind of got behind this and said well wait a minute these little plastic pellets that are in toothpaste and facial scrubs and all these different things like plastic is designed to last for hundreds if not thousands of years it's it's an amazing feat of engineering, and we spend a lot of resources getting oil out of the ground. And then we're taking it and putting it into products that are made to be washed down the drain after a single use. It's plastic to be used in a disposable manner is, is just insanity. But uh, the, the focus that we had with Surfrider was to say, well, this is actually causing a lot of harm to, uh, it's a human health risk. Mm -hmm. It's a massive infrastructure cost to, uh, you know, to sanitation systems for cities. And there's a lot of problems just with using this product in this way. So we, uh, the team of us, we launched a Ban the Bead campaign for Canada. Uh, and in a year later, we had federal legislation that listed microbeads as a toxic substance and banned the import, manufacture, sale, and distribution of microbeads uh, across Canada. And that was something that was really exciting. Uh, Surfrider is now working on a straws suck campaign to deal with plastic straws. And it's actually funny because before plastic was a big thing, um, we had straws made of paper that work just fine and we see a lot of uh, bars and restaurants surfrider is involved with this campaign now from across north america that are reaching out to say well we'd like to actually switch over and let people know this is what we're doing and surfrider really works to help to enable companies to make these shifts and communicate with the public that they're doing uh, something fairly progressive and you know, taking a stand for what they believe in which is really cool very nice yeah was, i heard a lot about the microbead problem with that Ending up in uh, various forms of seafood, yeah. uh, shellfish, etc., that people are uh, now finding links that you're actually ingesting this plastic and it's caused, uh, causing a lot of health 
uh, huge problems. health issues. There's a, the people don't realize. Um, maybe I should be very careful about naming company names, but uh, a couple of years ago, when I was uh, working in the investment industry, we were looking at a, a bottled water company, and I was looking at it from the risk assessment due diligence component and i started doing some research i was like well i wonder what like does the plastic get in the water uh in a bottled water company and so this is one of the largest in the world's companies they actually did some research it was on their website so you took a look at the terms and 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 the structure of their research that they did and it actually showed that one they didn't use small bottle of water they used the one gallon four liter jugs and they're typically in the supply chain cycle for months and they didn't test them after months they test them after 24 hours and they showed on the test that they were just below the level of acute toxicity for human consumption after 24 hours and they said see look we're fine and it just kind of made me realize i was like i don't think i want to do that and you know that was years ago and i don't think i want to be using as much plastic in my diet and that you know now you see this this research that's starting to come out to show that the chemicals that plastic releases into water and actually uh, specifically if you have like hot cup of coffee and styrofoam and you add anything like milk or anything fatty the chemical compounds bond to the fat very quickly and, and are easier to absorb in your body and people don't realize that your body thinks that they're esters and estrogen and it starts to really mess with all sorts of different things and and they're starting to put links in the u.s towards obesity and all sorts of issues with uh, hormonal issues and malfunctions with um, endocrine systems that we're realizing is maybe plastic isn't good for everything there's a lot of you know really good examples uh, of what plastic can be great for but maybe i don't necessarily want to be putting it in my toothpaste <laughs> as <Right>. an example <laughs> so yeah that's very exciting to hear it's uh it's good to know that people are um, behind these really important projects as well uh and uh, not just in day jobs so it's very reassuring yeah. to hear the leaders in the industry doing uh, what they can to make our planet a livable place for longer Totally. Well, and that's, I think, you know, we want to be able to enjoy it. I, you know, it's funny because when I started at Surfrider, I took over from a volunteer and uh, took over the role leading the chapter in in Vancouver. First thing I said is, well, we have to do a surf trip and I have to take surf lessons because I've never surfed before. (laughs) It's one thing to be involved in. It's, it's, It's about the water sports community and the ocean recreational ocean community in general but i'm a diver and a sailor and so it was well it's called surf rider foundation i should probably take up surfing and it's so much fun i love being in the water and so we you know you think of uh just diving as a perfect example or sailing you know i've sailed over the northern pacific and you see the impacts of things like plastic you see the impacts of pollution and it's very easy for us to choose not to do that problem is is we have to realize that it's the individual decision of the masses that is is going to be a big thing it's your choice to litter and not to litter it's your choice to use products that do this or don't do this and uh, you know maybe think a little bit more about your purchasing habits and which product do you buy based on its packaging not just which one's shiny but also which one do you do you want to take ownership of that trash is that you want that responsibility if you want that plastic bag for what 30 40 minutes and it has a life cycle of a thousand years like you kind of have to take that into account when you're getting different products i think it's a it's it's a broader thing but it is great to see different people um 
you know, with Surfrider, Yuri and the team there right now, the work that they're doing is, they're just carrying it on and taking it further, which is really cool. That's great. Awesome. As a final closeout question, uh, do you have any upcoming projects, speaking engagements, or conferences you're going to be at? Yes. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't even be able to rattle off the list. Uh, my team's put together a terrifying um, tour for, I think, end of January, February, and March. Uh, it's in line with our you know, our product rollout. January is, is when we're releasing our white label. Um, we're looking to release the beta of our platform for the end of Q1 and then our full platform. And, and we're really looking at our full platform uh, as, you know, if our, if our white label is there to serve crypto markets today, our beta is there to um, kind of meet the standards of private equity markets and our full platform will be able to compete directly on compliance with publicly traded markets. And so when we're looking at kind of that, plan for speaking we've got a number of uh, different conferences uh, we'll be either attending or speaking at i think there's uh you know everything from bitcoin super conference in dallas to money 2020 in asia uh there's a number uh, more in europe uh, australia there's literally a, a bit of a global tour that we're doing early next year and we have some really cool announcements we want to roll out with that so it's gonna be a lot of fun well, stay tuned. I'm excited to see what you do in the industry, and it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah.